Well, all right, we're in questions 29 through 31 tonight. And we've been looking at, or we finished wrapping up with the Redeemer, Christ the Redeemer, and what was his role and all of these facets. We looked at his offices and his states and all of those things. But now we think, okay, that's who Jesus is. And that's what he's done. And that's what he does. And then that's what he's done. How, how do I get it? That's a logical explanation, right? If you were sitting down with walking through this, this catechism with somebody, the point is, is that you've convinced somebody that God is there. The Bible is the truth that our purpose is to glorify God, that we can't because we're sinners. We haven't been left in that state of sin. We've been sent a redeemer, and he is all of these things that we've listed out, prophet, priest, and king, exalted and humiliated, or humiliated and then exalted. And so then you would think, well, then how do I get that? This, you've brought the person to this point of how does that come to me? That's the whole point. You know, sometimes what we do in evangelism as we do a drive-by, we just drop it in. Hey, say, you want to believe in Jesus right now? You're like, what, what, what? Okay, see you later. But spend some time in this. We're 28 questions in before we get to how does this happen to you? You've spent some time before we get to that point. Maybe we should do a little more pre-evangelism, explaining what's really the status of the world, the reality of God, humanity, Christ, and then now us as sinners. How do we receive this redemption? That's what the next question's got to be. Verse, not verse, question 29. How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? It's a logical question. How are we? The answer is not what you think. At least not what you think at this point. What we would think for this one comes in the next question. Here's the answer. It's we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. So the question is, how do we get redeemed by the Redeemer? And the answer was not pray the sinner's prayer. The answer was not walk down the aisle and kneel down at the altar. It wasn't about us at all. He doesn't mention us at all in the answer. The answer just says, we are made partakers by of redemption, purchase, or the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of the Holy Spirit. You're redeemed by the work of the Holy Spirit. So what we often do is when we talk about salvation, it's always bottom up. And that's how we look at it. And that's how we tell everybody else about it. It's that you're here, you need to get there, and the way to get there is through Jesus. But salvation first comes to us from above. And that's what we're going to look at. So a couple of the verses to lay this out, John 1, 11 through 12 John, you, you noticed that, well, you'll notice tonight, and then you've been noticing for the past several weeks that a lot of the theology about salvation, so soteriology, and a lot of the Christology, so the, the study of Jesus himself, comes from the Gospel of John. And that's, we, we're looking at John in Sunday mornings, and it's, it's the book of, of the theology. Like it, is, it is a deep theology. And so John 1, 11 through 12 says this, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So he came to the, to the Jews. They did not receive him. But to all who do receive, did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So in that verse, are we initiators or receptors? We're receptors, right? 
So we're not initiating, we're receiving something. That's the right way to think about it. You know, so here, let me just give you, a, let me vent a little bit. You can do some more spleen venting stuff at, in this evening service than you can in the morning service. So in high school, both of my wide receivers on my football team made All-State, first team. And I was a quarterback and I made honorable mention. And I put the math together and I said, how do they get the ball unless I throw it to them? So how am I not also on first team, but those two bozos get to be on first team and I don't? Because they don't get, I initiate, I throw, they receive, they are receivers. If they, I don't throw them the ball, then what are they doing out there? Running around in circles with nothing to do. And they're not even on the highlight tape unless I throw the ball to them. And this is us, right? So we're receiving what Christ has done. This is what salvation starts in a receptive way, not in a proactive initiation way or initiative way. When this, because look at the last phrase. He gave the right. How do we get the right to become children of God? It's got to be given. It's not earned. It's not obtained. It's not grabbed. It's given. That's how we become children of God. Even more clear in a verse like this. Titus 3 Five through six. He, this is how it starts out. I love it. I memorized this verse years ago. He saved us not because of works we had done or not on the basis of deeds, the New American Standard says, done by us in righteousness. But what? what? According to what? According to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. So this is, this is really the best verse for this question and answer because the, the answer is we get the redemption purchased by Christ through the effectual application by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's applying it to us with a real effect. And that's what this verse is all about. He saved us, not because we did anything, but because he was merciful. And it came to us, how? By the washing of regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is the active member of the Trinity in birthing us again. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 3, talking to Nicodemus? When he said, it, it, it's like the wind blowing, you have no idea where it's coming from or where it's going to go, where it's going to end up. So is all who are born of the Spirit, born of the Spirit. So he's the, the activator. He's the one moving towards lost sinners in their sinful state for salvation. The washing of regeneration renewing by the Holy Spirit. So he saved us. Couldn't be more clear. It's an act of God. Anybody ever been in insurance? Paul, you have. An act of God? Is that a, that's a category, right? I remember first, uh, my first real job, which was coaching football, so not a real job. But my assistant coach, who did the offensive line, because I don't know anything about offensive line, he was an insurance claims adjuster, and they had a hurricane down in Houston, just, just like it does every year. And he was going down there to file all the act of God claims. And I started thinking about that, like that's an actual term that the world uses, an act of God. What, and what, what is an act of God? Some structure or, or uh, area, landscape, place has been totally and unmistakably changed by the act of some invisible hand. A total transformation. And we don't know what else to classify it as, so we just call it an act of God. And isn't that this? An act of God? He did it all. We did nothing, and we don't know how to explain it. I didn't see myself get washed in regeneration or renewed by the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, it's happened. This is, the, this is the actual act of God, but you can't claim it on your insurance. 
He's the actor, we are the receptors. So that's the first question and answer as it comes to how does redemption come to me? And it would be, in typical evangelical search goals, pretty unsatisfying. You're like, man, what a, I'm supposed to get in there at some point. I mean, but we gotta start out with what is God doing? Because I could yell and scream all day for what I think I should get or what, but if, if God's not doing anything, then it doesn't matter. I'm on outside of the ark banging to be let in. That's, that's the picture. It's got to be God who opens the ark, puts me in, and then closes the door. That's the imagery in Acts. No, not Acts. Way further back than Acts. Genesis chapter 6. God closes the door to the ark. He goes to Noah and puts his family in, and then he closes the door. So it's got to be God acting first. Nevertheless, we still know that some, I, I am calling out. I'm doing something. So how does that factor in? Well, that's question number 30. So how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? So you see how, I mean, you could, a lot of these guys have had to have some kind of law or legal training because you ask a question and you give an answer and it leads to just another question that needs another answer. I mean, it's just like having somebody on the stand, right? You're asking them questions in order to lead you to a conclusion. So you're like, okay, so the Holy Spirit does it. He applies it to us. Well, how does he do that? What is that? What's that process like? Well, then here's the answer. The Holy Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Faith has to come into the equation somehow. We know that, and we wanted to say that on question 29. Right, we would have jumped right to faith then because that's what we talk about now. Not wrongly that we have an emphasis on faith. We believe in the five solos of the Reformation, one of which is sola fide, faith alone. That's right and true and good. But this is where faith actually fits. But faith, when you, when you boil it down to the average evangelical, what they view faith as is a little deposit. Everybody's born with 15 bucks in their pocket. And it's up to you to spend it in the right place. Like we innately just have faith. It's just a neutral item that everybody's got. And what we're trying to do as a church is convince you to spend it at the Jesus store. That, that's that's kind of how we look at it. But if it was really like that, then, then wouldn't we have to say that faith is a work? Because I have it. I did it. It was all me. But if we're saved by grace, and yet another sola gratia, another one of the five Reformation principles, then it can't be anything that I did. And if everybody has enough faith to, say, to, to spend it in the right place, well, then it's got to be a good work. You innately have something in you that can contribute to your salvation. At, at the very least, you're cooperating. At the very worst, you're doing the whole thing. So this is where we got to look at this question, which is, or answer, which is specifically worded that the Spirit applies Christ's redemption to us by working faith in us. He works faith in us. So here we go to John again. John 6, 37, which we covered months ago now. It's got to be. John 6, 37, this is Jesus' long conversation with the semi-disgruntled crowd that was fed bread and fish to their liking yesterday. Now it's the next day, and they're like, hey, 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 you gonna do it again? We're all here, we're hungry again. And he starts talking about, this is the bread of life discourse, back and forth a little bit. 
And so Jesus says in this moment, there's lots of theology packed into that chapter. And there's 71 verses in that chapter. It's long. But he says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So who comes to the Father? Or who comes to Christ? Only those the Father gives. So it, it's taking Father taking you placed out of the, the headship of Adam into the headship of Christ. It's being worked to us and, and for us. Faith is work, it being worked on us, not being convinced, hey, I know you have this already, just spend it here on Jesus, and that's where you got to go. That's where you're going to get the best bang for your buck, because that's where you're going to get the eternal dividends. Everywhere else is temporary dividends, so invest here, not there. No, God is doing it, moving you out of the headship of Adam into the headship of Christ. And the famous verse for this, we go to Paul, Ephesians 2.8. And if you see 2.8 without 2.9, sometimes it's helpful. Because we memorize those a lot of times just in chunks. If you were in Awana or uh, what was the thing, Allison, that the girls did at the Baptist church? GA, that was it. I couldn't remember it. GA or whatever other version you had of it out there. You, would do, you always put those two together, which is fine. Put them together. But when you see this, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It's the gift of God. So saved through faith... Faith is not your doing. Faith is the gift of God. When we see it there, when we just take that verse by itself, we run it all together real quick with two and nine, eight and nine, which is fine. It's all supposed to be read together. But when we pull it out, we see it so clearly. We've been saved through faith. It's by grace through faith. And faith is not your doing. Faith is the gift of God. So faith is a gift. We don't have it. We're given it. He's working faith in us. We're not born with the components necessary for salvation. We're born with nothing, dead in our sin. Just like a dead person doesn't innately have anything to life. You're dead. None of your synapses are firing. There's nothing necessary. We've got to bring you back from nothing if you're going to come back. So that's the first half of the question is this is how it happens. He works faith in us, the Spirit does, and He unites us to Christ in our effectual calling. Now, that effectual calling, that's the next question. We're going to look at uniting to Christ. When, when we think of salvation, we, we, I think it's maybe like since 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and on, we start talking about or phrasing it to kids is you know, inviting Jesus into your heart. We had ask Jesus into your heart. And then that kind of just billows out when we go from Sunday school as little kids to adults what I need is I need to get Jesus into me. And, and that's kind of how we function everywhere in life, right? Like what I need is to get that coffee into me. And then it'll have its effect. What I need is to get that health supplement into me or that medicine into me. And then it'll have its effect and then I will be better off. What we don't think is, I need to get myself into that coffee. Maybe you have thought that. You just want to dive into the pot because that's the only place you're going to find happiness that day. Maybe it is. But, but you, you don't think about it like that. But that's what the Bible, that's the primary illustration the Bible has as far as union with Christ. It's not him into us. It's us into him. There's a big, long passage on it. We're just going to read five verses. Romans 6, 3 through 8. And I want you to mark all these. You don't have to put it in your Bible, but you can just mark it. 
uh, in your mind or on your piece of paper. So it's verses 3 through 8, we're kind of picking it up in midstream, but you'll get the point when we get in here. So Paul's saying, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, there's a first one, were baptized into his death, there's a second one, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, if you've been in a Baptist church, that's the verse they read for baptism. Ain't it, Allison? Yes, it is. We, you know, <laughs> raised to walk with newness of life. But it's not talking about that kind of baptism. I hate to break it to my SBC brothers, but it's a whole different topic. So right now we got three. Number five is coming. For we have been united with him. There it is. Number four. In a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him. There's number five. In a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, number six, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, there's number seven, we believe that we shall also live with him, number eight. So in just this handful of verses, it's with Christ, in Christ, united to Christ, and it's us to him, not him to us. We have nothing to offer Jesus. He has everything to offer us. Our death is meaningless. His death is the most meaningful. Our life is non-existent. His life is all abundant. We've got to get into him. And if you really want to do an in-depth study, or not an in-depth study, just maybe a breeze through hunting for Easter eggs, do this same thing that we just did in the book of Ephesians, the whole book. For with Christ, in Christ, connected to Christ, that kind of imagery, you'll find it all over, up into the number 50s in the book of Ephesians. And that's just a six-chapter book. It's a mega theme in that book. So uniting us to Christ, that's what the Spirit does. Works faith unites us to Him, because that's the only place salvation is. A short little verse on this, too, that the um, Westminster Divines put with the Catechism was 1 Corinthians 1.9 which says, God is faithful by whom you were called, that's part of the answer, into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. Called into fellowship, oneness, togetherness, unity with him. So it's no accident that we call the Lord's table that we did this morning communion, our common union with Christ. This symbol of us being one with Christ because he's the only one that's earned righteousness. He's the only one that has merited God saying, come into my presence. None of us will have merited that. Christ will have merited it for us. When God says to us, well done, good and faithful servant, he's really talking to Jesus, us through Jesus. Because we have been pretty lousy servants most of the time. Christ is the faithful one. So we're in him. That's where the baptism, the word baptizo, which we saw in Romans 6, it really just means to immerse or surround or encompass or just be all over. That if you were, so when I explain it to my kids, I'm talking about what if you were in this lake? You know, we, we, we recently visited a lake or something and you go all the way under the water. Can they see you? Anybody see you that's standing on the land? They're like, no. But you're in there, aren't you? Yeah. Well, what are they looking at? All they see is the water. That's it. That's all they see. And so that's the image, like that all that we see is Christ. We've been, we're in his life and in his death. We're united to him. 
that immersion into Christ is our only hope. Union with Christ is not beneficial, it's essential. Without it, we have nothing. So that's, that's the, the big part of that question. But then that question, like they're so often to do, they leave you with one phrase that you're like, eh, explain that more. Because it says that happens, that we uh, are united to Christ by effectual calling. Well, then question 31, just like an honest person sitting at coffee who doesn't really understand the Christian faith very much, will say, well, what is that? And that's number 31. What is effectual calling? Now, here's the answer. This one's going to have a lot of verses, so get ready. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Now, that is what we were really after in question number 29. This is what we're talking about. Okay, me being saved. But we spent two questions not looking at that, looking mostly at the work of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. But now we're to this place of, oh yeah, I need to be convinced of my sin. I need my mind open to be able to see and understand who Christ is. I need a will, a desire to actually choose Him because I don't have that naturally. And then I need to be persuaded, thus enabled, to embrace Christ, who is rightly, freely offered to us in the gospel. So let's look at these piece by piece. The first piece is, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit. It is the work of God's Spirit. We looked at that earlier. Here's a few more verses to help us kind of really sink that in. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Jumps in the middle of a long sentence, which is just what Paul does. His sentences would get shredded by Millie because they are too long. They're all run-on sentences. They're all so long. Red marks all over it. But in Greek, you can do whatever you want, apparently. Who saved us, Jesus, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Whose purpose? His purpose. Which he gave us, which he gave us in Christ Jesus the moment we walked the aisle. No, it says before the ages began. That's when. So when we're, ta- when we're talking about, we're going to get into a second verse that's a little heavier than this one. But when we're talking about salvation, and, and then this is talking about election, this is unavoidable about election, what we never really get to communicate or never get the chance to is say that you've never not been on the heart of God. Have you thought about that? This is, if this is before the ages began, before time existed, there was never a moment before there were moments that God wasn't thinking of you and planning upon you. You, come, you being born and maturing to an age in order to hear and believe the gospel was, was a uh, formality in the eyes of God because he, he had always set his love on you before the foundations of the world, before the ages began. So it's his work, work of the Spirit. Now here's a more blunt one. Second Thessalonians is blunt. A lot of times Paul's second letter, 2 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, they're just a lot more blunt. Maybe it's like Empire Strikes Back, right, Greg? It's just a little more frank. I mean, we're going to see some guts, you know, on the, the frozen hoth planet, right? So, Don, that's right. <laughs> I couldn't remember the name of the thing. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. 
talking to this church, he says, but we always, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. This is happening because of Him and belief in the truth. To this, He called you. And we've all heard bad sermon illustrations of like, yeah, just get on the phone and call God. He'll answer and bring you to heaven. I'm like, well, it looks like he's calling me. <laughs> he's initiating to me. That's what's happening through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God chose you. His Holy Spirit worked this through you. He called you through the gospel. So a way to think of this, if you want to put a word on it that maybe is hard to remember, but maybe not, it's called monergistic. You heard of synergy? Every business talks about synergy, right? Nobody really knows what that means. It just means we make more money. Right? Like, hey, get out there and make more money and be synergistic. Synergistic, sin, meaning with, and then energy, so cooperating energy, right? You're moving with it. You're pumping your legs with the swing. Monergism, so a monergistic salvation, is you are paralyzed in one of those big swings at the park and being pushed all by your, all without your cooperation at all. That's salvation. It's happening to us. We are given the ability to cry out. That's what's coming next. So it's the work of the Spirit convincing us of sin and misery. Acts 2.37. We almost got there Wednesday morning, but we didn't make it. So if you come this Wednesday morning, men, we'll get there. This part. So after Peter's big sermon on the day of Pentecost, the people cut him off midstream and say, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart when they heard the message that Peter was preaching and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What are we going to do? We have to be convinced of our sin and misery. They weren't convinced before. And we know that this whole massive crowd, 3,000 people, becomes Christians at this, at this exact moment because they're going to repent and be saved, as it says later in chapter 2. But no one has ever been saved without being first convinced of their sin. Why is that? Do, you've got to be saved from something. Yeah, like, what am I reaching out for? If I'm fine, if I don't need that. That's when, you know, when it first dawned on me doing college ministry, I was like, we're constantly telling people that Jesus loves them. And everybody already thinks, yeah, they, he should. My mom loves me. My girlfriend loves me. Everybody, I'm a lovable person. Great. Another person loves me. Fantastic. Thanks. He can sign my fan club letter. We all think that. But what we need to be convinced of is our sin. And, and these, this, this, this example of Acts is what's happening right there. It's almost as if we become numb to our own sin stench. If you've ever had teenage boys been in their room or just walked by one, and you're like, how do you not smell it? How do you not... I mean, one time I went into, uh, or somebody came into, I held the door open in high school into the locker room because some other coach, or it was, a, it was the uh, Coach Edney, the, she taught the girls basketball, and there was something else in there, and I held the door open and so that she could come in and get the thing and then come out. And she about passed out <laughs> walking into the boys' locker room. And I was like, what's your problem? <laughs> I couldn't smell it at all. I'm numb to the stench of my own flesh. And that's what we are. We need to be convinced of our sin. Was what Peter was saying in Acts chapter 2 in that sermon. He's talking about you killed Jesus. This is the day of salvation. You better repent and believe now. And they're like, what? And they realize it and they see their miserable state. 
And that comes along with the enlightening of our minds. So here's Paul, Acts 26, 18. This is Paul giving his testimony to King Agrippa. Paul has to give several defenses towards the end of the book of Acts. Often he uses his testimony to talk to him, and he's, he's trying to convert him. And one king goes, are you really trying to convert me right here, right now? Paul says, uh, yes, that's what I'm trying to do. That's the only reason for me being in front of you. But this is in part of his, he's, he's retelling what happened in Acts chapter 9. So this is 26 verse 18. So this is Jesus speaking, or Paul speaking for Jesus while he's giving his testimony to King Agrippa. And he says to Jesus to open their eyes, or Jesus says to Paul, that you're going to go to the open the Gentiles' eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That open their eyes, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and to place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. They need their eyes to be opened. We don't have to... We don't have time to read it, but just write down 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Enlighten our eyes. And we, don't we naturally pray like that when you think of a lost loved one? Open their eyes. They have heard it, especially when it's a child, that adult child. You're like, I know that they've heard the gospel. They've seen it. They've been around it. They have other friends who have believed it. And the only thing that I can say is open their eyes because they can't see what's right in front of them. And it's dumbfounding to us because we don't look at ourselves. Well, we shouldn't look at ourselves and go, man, I'm a genius. I'm sure glad I figured this out. I'm so smart. I just took my odds and you know, read it and like, oh, that's it. That's the best plan. I'm going to go ahead and sign up for that one. No, we look at ourselves and go, man, I'm, I'm a fool. I, I'm a sinner. And the longer you go in the Christian life, you're like, man, I, Tommy Nelson says it like this. We all start out as Pelagians. Pelagius was a heretic who said you have enough grace in yourself to save yourself. And he fights Augustine. Augustine wins. And then after a little while, we start out Pelagians thinking, yeah, I did this. Then we become semi-Pelagians or Arminians. No, well, I'm not, I'm not amazing, but I at least cooperated with God. I mean, I, I was in there. I wasn't doing it all, but I was in there. And then you live a little more life, and then you realize, you know, actually, I'm just a pathetic sinner that can't do anything. And then you become a Calvinist because you're like, man, God did it all for me. I didn't do anything. I am so pathetic and so weak. I couldn't do anything. And you get to that place because your, your mind has been enlightened. And you know that that's what I'm praying for somebody else because it wasn't anything that made me, about me that made me better. And I can't persuade. I've been preaching at them since they were born or since I've met them. God has to open their eyes. And that's what Jesus was telling Paul. This is what I'm going to do with, through you. But we don't even, it's one thing to open your eyes and be able to go, oh, that's the truth. But you still don't want it. It's one thing to be able to see it and acknowledge it. I need the will. I need the desire for it. That's why we read the New Covenant passages in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. That's what that's all about. That the, before the New Covenant, where is the law of God? It's outside of people, right? It exists written on the tablets in the tabernacle in the temple that's what the law of god is and what does god say in, in jeremiah 31 is equal 36 i'm going to write it on your hearts i'm going to put it in you and where's the spirit of god in the old covenant hovering over the lid of the tabernacle called the mercy seat in the temple in the holy of holies and where's the holy spirit now he's in us so this is, this is a totally different, this is a new covenant. We have a new will. So Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, we read it, but let's read it again. 
Because this is the, the, the profoundness of the new covenant. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone. Heart of stone meaning just like a, it's dead. It can't do anything. And so then you're dead. And I'm going to take that heart out and put one that beats, that pumps, that has blood. I'm going to put that in you. And then verse 27 I'll put my spirit within you and look at this and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. Wait a minute. Beforehand, I was to cause myself and the priest was to cause me and to motivate me to obey these 613 laws. Now you're going to do it because you've put your heart and your spirit in me. And now my, the desire to obey is coming from it within me instead of being forced on me from outside which is the law of legalism, which is the, is the horrible motivator. It just produces guilt and shame and inability and frustration, and then eventually you quit. But when it's coming from within, I want to keep going after that. I want to keep pursuing because it's, it's in me now. And that's the new covenant. Renewing our wills, the question says, or the answer says. And then lastly, persuading and enable us to embrace it. Persuading us and enabling us to embrace it. And then we go back to John. You got to go back to John. We're talking about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. John 6, 44 and 45. Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So who can come to Jesus? No one unless the Father has drawn them. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be they will all be taught by God. That's what we just read in Ezekiel 36. We're taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So by the time you get to this, so we went through all of these things in the question. So we, the Holy Spirit's working on us. He's initiating, convicting us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds, renewing our wills. Now we embrace the good news now we believe. So then you, if you think about comparing this to this is the, the redemption that Christ offers, there, there really isn't a better image than birth. That's why Jesus uses that with the intelligentsia of the day, with Nicodemus. When did you cry out for mama? In the womb? After you were born, Right? And then all, all the moms in here who have given birth, did you feel like those kids cooperated with you? Were they like, yeah, my mom, let's do this. I'll be ready at about tomorrow. I'll let you sleep in. Let's hit about 10.30 a.m. No, it's, it's 10.30 p.m. or 1.30 a.m. I mean, it's, there's no cooperation going on, and that kid gets stuck in there, and it's sideways and upside down, and you are getting him out. And you know who also didn't help was your husband. I was there four times. I didn't help. I was just watching ESPN on TV. Mom did it. And then after that baby's out, what does the baby do? Give me mom. That's the first thing. That's what they do. They lay that baby on mom. But they don't holler for mom until they're born. So what we've been looking at here is a basic principle that regeneration precedes faith. Faith is the baby crying out. Regeneration is the baby being born. Which one comes first? Baby's got to be born. They got to be alive. 
before that baby can cry out and out and, and in the world. And now it's like, mama, 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 that's us. We get born again. The Spirit works on us, enlightens us, opens our eyes, convicts us of sin, and we say, Jesus, save me. That's at the moment. And, that, and it just makes sense. It's just, it, it just the picture of birth, it, why it's called the new birth. And that's the image that Jesus chose to use himself. Peter picks up on it, and John picks up on it in his shorter epistles. But that's what we've been looking at today. And we often, too often, we run the topic of salvation from our perspective first. As if we think that if I talk about what God does, maybe it'll scare this person off or it'll confuse this person. I'll just tell them the truth. This is what God does in salvation. You do have to respond. It's in an order, and it's all happening super fast because it's not like a baby because sometimes a baby's being born. When Chloe was being born, she was just sitting in the canal for like an hour. How long was she sitting in there? It was forever, but her heartbeat was fine, and so the doctor was like, we're just going to leave her there. She was in no hurry to come out. It's all in the Lord's timing, but, but we don't have it like that in the new birth. It's not like it's, well, we're just kind of, you're kind of partially born right now. No, no, no. It's all happening at the same time. It's a logical sequence versus a chronological sequence. It's not like it's got to happen this and then happen this. It all happened at the same time, but there's got to be a logical order to it. And all these things, the, the, uh, the work of the Spirit, the convicting of sin, the enlightening our minds, renewing of our wills, that doesn't happen with months in between. It's happening like boom, right at the same time. So there we go. Two minutes left till 6 o'clock.